Um, so today is Super Bowl. How many of you are going to a Super Bowl party? Hosting a Super Bowl party. Uh, I think I heard on the way in this morning, the average party size is 19 people. I don't know how that's even possible. I don't even have 19 friends. Um, so to have a good Super Bowl party, you need some good rules, right? Like we don't necessarily think of rules, but um, you need to have some things in place to make sure you enjoy the game, right? Like there's certain people you will invite, certain people you won't invite. There's certain parties you'll go to because of who they're cheering for. Maybe some you don't go to because of who they're cheering for. Or maybe you just know, man, this party's got the food. Like they've got it. Or maybe they're not that into the game. You don't go to the party. Or maybe they're more into the commercials. You go to that one. A party to be successful has to have some common ground rules, right? So if you're throwing a party, what are some of your, your rules that you have, implied or explicit? Any rules out there people have? Take, take your shoes off, okay? Don't double dip. That's a big one. Anybody else? Halftime show. You got to watch it. Clean up after yourself. You guys run a tight ship here. Man, I got some basic ones. Don't block the TV, right? No talking during commercials. I love number three. Keep your rookie questions to yourself. If you don't understand a ruling on the field, Google it. It's what your phone is for. Don't interrupt me. We already talked about double dipping. If you're coming to my party, bring more than a two liter. Like bring something good. I'm putting this thing on for you. Do something good. We all have rules. Relationships, society runs best when we have kind of this common understanding of what we can expect and how we're going to behave. But the problem is in church, we typically boil things down to two very common extremes. And maybe you've been in a church like this. It's all rules. Like you can't do anything right. Or maybe you've been to a church where it's, it's all love, it's all grace, and like anything goes, and you can do anything, you can say anything, it's just all grace. The Old Testament isn't there, you just need Jesus, it's just kind of like, all you need is love, right? Famous song, all you need is love. The verses that we're talking about this morning come at a very critical juncture in Matthew 5, very important time. So Jesus has gone up onto the mountaintop. And he's got this crowd of people with him, and they're listening to Jesus. And at 30 years old, it's remarkable to think about, 30 years old, Jesus has this group of people, and they're looking to him like, oh, man, this guy's our next ticket out of here. Like, he is the Messiah. He's going to change everything for us. And Jesus goes up on a mountaintop, and we've talked the past two weeks how going up on the mountaintop for a Jewish audience kind of it draws to mind this idea of Moses, going up on the mountaintop. And Moses meets with God and delivers to Israel the ways and the will of God, how Israel would be operating. And the crowd following Jesus looks at him and says, oh man, Jesus is gonna do something similar. He's going up on the mountaintop and he's gonna deliver the law just like Moses. And everything's gonna be completely different for us. Well, Jesus does do something new. He does something different, but not the way that we would think. Let's read Matthew 5, 17. Jesus says, don't even begin to think that I have come to do away with the law and the prophets. I haven't come to do away with them, but to fulfill them. I say to you very seriously that as long as heaven and earth exist, neither the smallest letter nor even the smallest stroke of a pen will be erased from the law until everything there becomes a reality. So Jesus gets up on the mountaintop and all these people are baited with expectation and anticipation that Jesus is going to do something new. And Jesus says, okay, 
I'm not completely changing. I'm not flipping over the table. I'm not changing everything because that's what people were thinking he was doing. They thought he was doing something completely new and he sets that straight. He says in 517, I have not come to abolish the law, to overturn. Now, in America, we think of a certain thing when we think of law. We think of statutory law or common law, civil law, and this idea that our system has systematized and codified laws for us as a society to follow. And that means all the language is kind of condensed and made very clear as much as possible. I, lawyers still argue about what it means, but they've tried very clearly to make it consistent. Or common law, civil law, we have these past rulings that judges have made and future rulings kind of hinge on those prior rulings. That's not the way it was in Israel when you think of law. Laws in ancient Israel were not systematized. They weren't clarified. They weren't, all language wasn't exactly just right. And what I found interesting as I studied for this is that you cannot find an example in the Hebrew Bible where a judge or a king says, oh, I've got to make a ruling. Let me pull out the law and make a ruling based on the law. It doesn't happen. And in fact, the Hebrew Bible, when it says, hey, choose judges from among you, it doesn't say choose judges who know the law perfectly, who know it inside and out. It actually says choose judges on whom the spirit of God and wisdom reside. That's the qualifier. The spirit of God lives on these people and wisdom resides within them. It doesn't say make sure they know the law perfectly. So we have to step back and say, okay, what does Jesus mean by the law? When he says, I haven't come to abolish the law and prophets, what is he saying? The law in the Hebrew context refers to the Torah or the first five books of the Bible. And so when we hear law and prophets, the shorthand is law and prophets are the whole Hebrew Bible. The whole Old Testament, law and prophets equals the Hebrew Bible. So when we think about what Jesus is saying, he's saying this whole book of the Hebrew Bible, about two thirds of our Bible, is not going to pass away. And in that story of the, the law or the Torah is the creation of humanity and God setting up humanity's purpose. We've got examples of people trying to follow God and God reaching out to humanity saying, hey, I want to restore this relationship God choosing Israel from among the people and saying, I want to bless you and through you, I want to bless all of creation. We have this formation of Israel. We have all this wisdom literature. So when Jesus says law and prophets, he's talking about the whole story, the whole narrative of the Hebrew Bible leading up to Jesus, not just the do's and don'ts and not just the 10 commandments. Like the picture is so much bigger. Now, Matthew 5, 18 there's an interesting phrase that really doubles down on this. Jesus says, neither the smallest letter nor even the smallest stroke will be overturned or taken away. Now, we know in English, small things make a big difference, right? When you think about grammar, when you think about sentences, I got a couple pictures here I want to show you. Let's see if we can notice the difference in this one. Tables are for eating customers only. <laughs> Something's missing there, right? Let's go to the next one. Let's eat, Grandpa. Or let's eat grandpa. Small things make a big difference. Last one. Buy bed, free nightstand. Some of you saw something different. Some of you saw something different. 
Small things, some of you are catching it now. Uh, small things make a big difference, right? And Jesus is saying that in the Hebrew Bible, even the smallest things are going to stay the way they are because they mean something. Now, I want to get a little nerdy on you and show you some Hebrew. So, anybody, I know this doesn't make sense to some of you, um, but can anybody notice a difference between these two words? What's the difference? You see a difference? I hear squiggles, I hear something else, all kinds of stuff. Second letter, there it is. So we have a kof, dalet, shen, kof, resh, shen. So the D sound and the R sound here. And the only difference is this little crook in the dalet. And this is nice typeface, like, but in handwriting, this little crook here would, could be smaller. And Jesus is saying, even this small little difference here between letters is going to stand. These two words mean something very different. Kadash means holy. And karash means board or plank of wood. Like those are two different things, right? Those are two completely different things, all hinging on this one little crook in this middle letter. Now, one more example real quick. Two, two words. Can we notice the difference in this one? The, well, some, we should have started with a whole Hebrew lesson. So Hebrew reads right to left. So it's the first letter. Should have started with that, sorry. Um, so this little bump right here, this little mark, creates a big difference between bara and kara. Two completely different things. Bara means to be ill or sick, and kara means to kneel or bow down. And Jesus is saying something so small and seemingly insignificant of that is actually going to stay in place. It's going to remain in the scriptures because everything written in the Torah and the prophets is there for a purpose. He's not coming to overturn it, to modify it, to edit it. He's doing something different. Verse 19. Therefore, whoever ignores one of the least of these commands and teaches others to do the same will be called lowest in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever keeps these commands and teaches other people to keep them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. I say to you that unless your righteousness is greater than the righteousness of the legal experts and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoa, that sounds serious, really serious. And I want to boil it down this way. Jesus does not say we need a better law. He says we need a better righteousness. I've read this wrong for many years, and I think a number of churches do too. He doesn't say we need a better law. He actually says everything in the Torah and the prophets is going to remain, but we need something better, a better righteousness. Because there's nothing wrong per se with the Hebrew Bible, but there was something wrong with the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, how they fulfilled the Hebrew scriptures. And Jesus comes along and fulfills them in a very unique way that exceeds the Pharisees. How Jesus lives out the Hebrew Bible and the ways and the will of God is so much better. And Jesus actually challenges you and I to have a better righteousness than experts in the law. He raises the bar because there's fundam something fundamentally flawed in the way that the Pharisees are living out the law. Now, righteousness does not refer to an ethical ideal, not an ethical idea. Actually, righteousness is a relational term. We've talked about this past couple of weeks. It talks about the rightness between us and God and rightness between those around us. It's a relational 
term. And every relationship, just like your Super Bowl party, thrives when there's certain codes of conduct, certain ways to behave, how to treat each other. When a friend breaks our trust, we don't necessarily say they broke a rule, but we know deep down inside friends just don't do that, right? Or a spouse, when they step out on the relationship, we know that something is fundamentally wrong because they've broken the terms or the agreement, the code of conduct on that relationship and the relationship suffers. See, this righteousness has everything to do with how we relate with God and we relate with others. And a proper understanding, a proper way of how we relate is laid out by God in which every relationship can be sustained and strengthened. Now, all these rules, these code of conducts, they do not create the relationship, right? Relationships aren't built on rules, but they can kill the relationship. They don't create the relationship, but they can kill the relationship. I've had so many conversations lately with uh, grown children of alcoholic homes. Um, Maybe that's you. Um, Lately, I've just been meeting with individual after individual, and they've shared their story of what it was like to grow up in their home. And if you don't know, I grew up in an alcoholic home. My father was an alcoholic. And after a number of conversations, I, I saw these two things playing out. The first is a relationship where there are no rules. Basically, the alcoholic lives however they want. And it results in emotional, verbal, physical, sometimes sexual abuse. They, they've crossed every boundary you can think of. It's a relationship without rules. And then conversely, the other category that I see them fall into is it's all rules. This is kind of a walking on eggshells all the time. This is kind of the house I grew up in. Where... As a child, you're like, okay, I know if I do these things, it it results badly on me. So I'm going to start doing all these things to avoid the negative consequences of my interaction with my alcoholic parent. Or I'm going to do these things. I'm going to become the person that this person wants me to be because if I just live good enough, they're going to love me. If I just do everything right, they're going to accept me. They're going to be proud of me. And there's that brokenness of relationship boils down to these two things. Relationships without rules are destructive. And rules without relationship are restrictive. Two extremes. If it's all about relationship and there's no rules, it's destructive. And if it's all rules and no relationship, it's incredibly restrictive. And there's a group in scripture that Jesus is addressing that falls into these categories. And if we want to understand what a better righteousness is, we have to understand what the Pharisees were doing wrong and the type of righteousness that they had. They were the legal experts. The Pharisees were around about 200 years before Jesus comes on the scene. They only kind of exist another 100 years past Jesus's lifetime. They knew the law inside and out. They could follow it perfectly. They would go out of their way to do everything correctly. They were the holier than thou people. Better than others. Not only that, they actually challenged others to live perfectly as them. And when they couldn't, it was real easy to look down on those people. Say, ah, I'm more righteous. I'm better than you are. Because I have met the standard. And here's what Jesus says about them. Matthew 23. Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, the teachers of the law and the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat. What does that mean? The Pharisees have a place of authority. 
They sit in Moses' tradition of knowing and giving the law, and they understand the wisdom and the ways of God. And so Jesus says, you must be careful to do everything they tell you. Must be careful to do everything they tell you. But here's the problem. 23, verse 3. But do not do what they do, for they do not practice what they preach. What do we call this? Hypocrisy, right? We hate hypocrisy. Whether it's with our boss, whether it's with our spouse, whether it's with our kids, it's everywhere. It gets underneath our skins when somebody says something but does something different or maybe does something but with the wrong motive or the wrong attitude. Because we know deep down inside there's a wrong way to do the right thing even, right? My kids show me this occasionally. I, uh, my four-year-old Isaac, uh, my youngest son, is kind of going through this phase where he gets very angry when we give him a consequence, right? So he's done something wrong, and we give him a consequence, and he's just fuming. And we're like, all you have to do is say sorry. And he is fighting it with everything in him. You know, he's got the angry face, and he's like firm, and he's tense, and he's just throwing a fit. And finally, after some time, my wife will usually come along and be like, you just need to say sorry to dad. And he's like, sorry, dad. And that makes me more mad than the problem he caused. Why? Because I can clearly tell his heart's not in it. He hasn't realized the impact he's had on the relationship. And he just wants to get it over with. But his heart isn't in the right place. Jesus goes on in Matthew 23 to confront that very thing. And I've got to really encourage you. I love... Uh, reading these two chapters together, Matthew 5 and Matthew 23. Do it at some point because you'll see so much of the parallel between Matthew 5 is played out in Matthew 23 when Jesus addresses the Pharisees and the scribes. So if you're like, I don't really understand what Matthew 5 is. It's all these positive statements. Do all this stuff. Look at Matthew 23 because you'll see the negative of it. Don't do all these things. Matthew 23, Jesus goes on. He's really laying into the scribes and Pharisees. Matthew 23 contains seven woes. We're just going to read one of them. So basically an indictment against the Pharisees. He says, woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you, you hypocrites. You tie the tenth of your spices, mint, dill, and cumin. Essentially, they're doing all the things right, all the spiritual things, all the ceremonial things correctly. They're following the law to the letter. It goes on, but you have neglected the more important matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. Now, a lot of us get tripped up here because we're, we begin to think, okay, all I have to do is follow justice, mercy, and faithfulness, and I'll be good. I don't have to worry about the smaller things. You know, there aren't kind of all these other standards that Jesus puts out or other ways of wisdom that Jesus points out. Um, you know, justice, mercy, and faithfulness are kind of the, the summation of the Beatitudes that we've talked about the past two weeks. And we can think, okay, all I have to do is just do those things and I'm good. But Jesus actually takes it a step further. He says, you should have practiced the latter, justice, mercy, and faithfulness without neglecting the former. It's the whole package. It's the whole thing that Jesus wants us to do. And he's, he's chiding the Pharisees for, for really using the things that can cause them to elevate themselves while putting others down. All about rules without relationship. See, some of us have mistaken what Jesus is doing here. 
And we, we can easily say, okay, I've just got to do justice, mercy, compassion. If we just love, everything is good. All you need is love. We just need to love and everything else is good. We don't need kind of the wisdom, the laws, all the standards that God lays out in scripture. If we just love, everything's going to be great. And Jesus actually doesn't say that. He says it is actually through love that we can fulfill the law. Several times in scripture, it doesn't say the law abolishes or love abolishes the law. It says love fulfills the law. So when we are loving correctly, that love has to be anchored to scripture. And what, what scripture, what anchors love are all these laws, the wisdom of God. Love fulfills the law. To love well, we have to be anchored to the principles, values, and the ways of God, or else love gets weird pretty quickly. It all boils down to individual preference. What Jesus is saying is these two things work together, love and law. And when we fulfill love, we fulfill the law because it's about rightness with God and rightness with others. Verse 25, Matthew 23, 25. He goes on and says to the Pharisees, you clean the outside of the cup and the dish, but inside they are full of greed and selfish indulgence. We're getting to the heart of it, right? All the things that we do, you know, if we want to live a wise way, a healthy way, it can be easy to say, okay, I just have to apply the principles of the Beatitudes and life will be good. But Jesus says, yeah, that'll benefit you, but there's something deeper that needs to happen. There's whole wholeness internally that needs to take place, a transformation that needs to take place. To have a better righteousness, we need to get something right. The Pharisees had gotten something critically wrong. So I want to show you a little image here of humanity, Torah, and God. And I want to explain it quickly. What Pharisees did was we have humanity in direct relationship to Torah or law. So if I just follow all these things perfectly, if I follow the rules, if I follow the wisdom of Torah, then I get God. If I follow Torah, then I get God. If I follow the wisdom, the Beatitudes, then I get God. Or what tends to happen, if I follow all these things, then I become God. Like I'm good enough and others are less than. And what Jesus comes along and says, okay, we were created for something different. Yes, we benefit from the wisdom, the laws, the Torah of scripture, but we were created for something much better. This is what we were created for. Humanity in direct relationship with God, which then benefits from the wisdom of God. We were meant for a one-on-one connection with God, first and foremost, a relationship with him. And out of that relationship, our hearts are transformed, our inner internal way of operating is transformed and we gain all the wisdom and the goodness and the values and the principles of God, but ultimately we are connected to God first. And that transforms our hearts and allows us to be different, allows us to be transformed. See, Jesus is trying to orient our hearts. He's trying to capture our hearts. That was the problem with the Pharisees. They were so locked into the law that they lost sight of God. They lost sight of what God was telling them to do. See, the whole Sermon on the Mount is only effective when we have both feet firmly planted in a relationship with God. When we give ourselves fully and foremost to him as his child in relationship with him. Only then, when that relationship is right and strong, can we truly understand the love of God, the grace of God. 
but also the power and the holiness and the wisdom of God. Only when we're fully connected to God do those rules, the wisdom, the law, the stories begin to make sense. And we are transformed and motivated to follow the ways of God naturally because we know that the relationship is there. We're no longer like my toddler just saying, sorry, dad. You know, it's like that just forced following of Jesus where we do all the things just to get the relationship. Something deeper happens. Deuteronomy 7, this is a great reminder. The Lord did not set his affection on you and choose you because you were more numerous than other people. For you were the fewest of all people. But it was because the Lord loved you and kept the oath he swore to your ancestors that he brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the land of slavery, from the power of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. The Lord has chosen you. The story of the Hebrew Bible is God comes along and he chooses Abraham and he says, I want to bless you. And through you, I want to bless all the creation, all of humanity. And that promise, that establishment of relationship actually comes 430 years before all the laws. And he looks at you today and he says, I have chosen you, not because you were more powerful or more influential or more holy or because you did everything right, but because I loved you. And I want to fulfill a promise to you that I will forever pursue you and be in relationship with you regardless of what happens I am here for you. It's a powerful story of God's love. My dad and I had a restrictive and destructive relationship. We were never fully connected. It was built on rules. And the thing that I picked up from that is, as I deal with my two sons, I have to instill rules, right? There are codes of behavior. There there are ways to operate. There are things that they should and should not be doing But every time I need to lead with this idea that you are my son, you are loved, I have chosen you and will a hundred times over. And that relationship is actually what's most important. Because when that relationship is strong and firmly intact, then we naturally do the things that are right by each other, right? That's what scripture is telling us. We are not connected to God by the laws, the wisdom of scripture, by doing all the things of the Beatitudes, living a certain way, we're connected to God first and foremost because he chooses you and he loves you. See, it was not the law that was corrupt, but it is our hearts. The psalmist says it over and over again, search my heart, O God, and create in me a clean heart. Ezekiel and Jeremiah, long before Jesus come on the scene, say, hey, God is choosing you and he wants to put his spirit, his stamp of love inside your heart and he wants to write his law on your heart because he knows that when we are in relationship with him, we naturally do the things that he calls us to do. The problem is, is we continually turn away. We pursue our own ways, our own wisdom. Or we think by doing all the right things, we finally get God's approval. want you to know this morning that you are fully and wonderfully loved. That God has decided to walk alongside you and will never turn from that path. He was walking alongside you from day one. 
Not because of what you've done or what you can do for him, but because he's chosen you. And he knows that when we respond to that, it actually transforms everything within us and it leads us to a better righteousness where our relationship with God and relationship with others is so much more than what we could ever hope or imagine. Will you follow him up this this mountain as we talk about the Sermon on the Mount? Will you follow him on this journey, getting connected to him personally, emotionally, spiritually, because he loves you, because he is good and he is worth every effort, because he unconditionally loves you and pursues you no matter what. Let's pray. God, remind us on a daily basis how much you love us. God, it can be easy to get trapped into all the things that we must do. And as Jesus just confronts the Pharisees and says, hey, you heap up loads of laws on people and it crushes them, Lord. Some of us feel crushed this morning because we just feel like there's all rules and no relationship. I pray, Lord, that your love would shine through in this moment, that we would get a glimpse of how good you are, how you call us deeper into relationship with you and how that relationship transforms everything. May your love come alive to us this week, that we would see you holy new ways in your name.